Hi there. This is Kathy Nicholas, and I'm your guide for Kathy on Earth, a podcast about life on Earth, everything from koalas to water lilies, and also the people here on Earth and how we relate to nature, each other, and other animals. In this episode, I'm talking with a longtime friend of mine, animal care expert, animal training expert, animal behavior expert, Beth Rich. Beth has been around animals basically her entire life, since she started taking horseback riding lessons at age six. Her animal career has taken her across the United States and all around the world to teach people how to create trusting relationships with animals in their care, Uh, whether it was to train a house cat or a lion to let you trim its nails. Beth is really committed to ensuring that animals in human care, whether that's at home or in zoos, have the best quality of life. She really helps us get into the minds of the animals and shares some training resources so we can be better human companions and caretakers. Listen for some cool zoo stories about using positive reinforcement to help a marmoset with diabetes and find out why penguins are like junior high schoolers. Hi, Beth. Welcome to Kathy on Earth. I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. I've known you for a long, long time. And when we worked at the zoo together, I always admired your passion for wildlife. And so when you asked me to uh, do the podcast and talk about animals and things like that, I thought that would be really, really fun. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? My dad gave me horseback riding lessons when I was six years old. Mm. So it, it started at a very young age, but then kind of officially worked in the animal business starting at age 16. I was working in a vet clinic. So I've ever since then, I've worked with animals. I went to college at UC Santa Barbara, got a degree in zoology, and then eventually started at the zoo as an educator or at the wild animal park. Came down to the zoo and just kind of worked my way through the zoo business. So um, this is the San Diego Safari Park. Now yes, in yeah. The San Diego Zoo here in yeah, California. Yeah. And I worked for the Zoological Society for 10 years and then went to the Racine Zoo. I was an animal care supervisor there, Racine, Wisconsin, for almost two years. And then to Idaho Falls at the Idaho Falls Zoo for five and a half years as the curator and director. And then back to Wisconsin to the Milwaukee County Zoo as director of animal care management and health for a little over four years. And then back to San Diego to be closer to my family. So that's my circuitous route of animal stuff. Wow. Also volunteered for the Shape of Enrichment, which is an animal welfare organization really dedicated to furthering animal enrichment and teaching about animal enrichment. And we'll talk more about that later, I'm oh, sure. Oh, talk about it now. Okay. What, what is animal um, enrichment? Enrichment is basically opportunities for animals under human care to engage in natural behaviors. I always like to say, if you ask five different zookeepers what's enrichment, you're going to get five different answers. Oh, it's giving camel hair to a lion for them to smell and lick and roll around in. Someone might say it's giving a puzzle feeder to a chimpanzee. So they have to have some cognitive stimulation to figure out how to get the food out. But when you boil it all down, it's any opportunity for an animal to engage in some kind of natural behavior. Scent marking, rolling around in something. Your dog enjoys enrichment, you know, chewing on things. Your domestic house cat 
cat likes enrichment. Catnip would be an example of enrichment for a cat to engage in that natural behavior. And it's really important because these natural behaviors are highly motivated. These are things that animals want to do and need to do to be mentally and physically happy and healthy. Right. I'm glad that you said natural behaviors because... You and I have talked a lot about training animals, and we'll talk a little bit more about training animals today. And I think that there's some confusion in some people's minds around if you're training an animal, you're training it to do a trick or something (laughs) unnatural. Tell me about some things that you've trained people to do in order to utilize the natural behaviors of animals, maybe around veterinary care or... When we talk about training animals in a zoo or in your home, what we're trying to do is train, especially in a zoo, cooperative behaviors so that we can decrease an animal's stress over something that may have to happen. So training medical behaviors is a good example. When we train an animal to come up to us and just open their mouth and hold their mouth open so we can see inside and see how their mouth looks. Opening the mouth is a very natural behavior. I mean, animals open their mouths all the time to take a bite of something. But what we're going to do is say, all right, polar bear, I want you to come over here and open your mouth so I can look inside really carefully and look at your teeth and look at your gums. And I'm going to do this so we can keep an eye on things and we can step in and maybe treat a, a tooth issue with antibiotics without having to have a veterinarian come in and dart you with an anesthetic dart, which is stressful for everybody. So if we can train what we call cooperative behaviors, train animals to participate in their own care, we can decrease the risk associated with anesthesias, increase the longevity, but also really decrease stress. So an at-home variation of that is I need to take my cat to the vet, for example, and yes. I get the carrier out yes. far in advance. Yes. My mom, sorry, mom, I'm going to throw you under the bus. <laughs> she has a cat named Diamond, who's about 14 years old, I think. She's a, a, a very pretty little tortoiseshell, and my mom takes her to get her nails trimmed about every six to eight weeks. So she was telling me this story one time about how Diamond was hiding under the bed and she had to crawl under the bed and drag the cat out and wrestle with her to put her in the crate and how stressful it was for her. And I said, Mom, stop. Think about how it was for the cat for a minute. Do you think the cat enjoyed getting drug out from under the bed? Do you think the cat enjoyed being manhandled and shoved into the crate? Well, no. Of course she didn't. I can help you do some things to make this cat's life a whole lot better. So mom, try this. A week before you have to go get the cat's nails trimmed, just put the carrier out in the middle of the room and throw some food in it so that the carrier isn't stressful. Really? Is that all it takes? Really? That's all it takes. So sure enough, the next time it was much less stressful. The cat was like, oh yeah, it's the carrier. Mm -hmm. She still had to pick her up and put her in the carrier, but the carrier wasn't this source of anxiety. So she said, oh, that was really great. Good idea. Thanks, Mom. Of course it was. Mm -hmm. To be fair, your mom is an incredibly intelligent and empathetic person. She's a psychologist. (laughs) It's just that. This this is a learned skill. Yes, it is very much a learned skill. Then she told me another story about how, well, I had the crate out there in 
the middle of the floor, but the cat got under the bed before I could get her into the crate. Well, next time just shut the bedroom door so the cat can't get into the bedroom. So in animal training, we talk about setting ourselves up to succeed. Let me interrupt you because I was just going to ask you, what do we humans Mm -hmm. need to to set our expectations for ourselves first and foremost, as well as to set expectations for the animals so that we can succeed together? Yeah. How do we succeed together? And I think first and foremost, I'll, I'll say this, human beings are really good at thinking about themselves. And that's how we have survived. But to really be successful with an animal, you have to stop thinking about yourself for a little bit and think about how the animal is perceiving what's going on around it. So that's one of the things that I've always admired about you is that you have that kind of intuition and you are able to kind of get the vibe from animals. I've been in a horse arena with you. I've watched you train your cat and what do you think that it factor is what is it is that something that you can verbalize so that the rest of us mere mortals can put yourself in the animal shoes get down on the floor next to the cat get down on the floor next to the dog and look at the world from their perspective but then also think about how your behavior is being seen by that animal We think we're communicating one thing, but that may not be what the animal is perceiving. And you have to start thinking about the animal. Or if it's not an animal, it's another person. Or a two-year-old. Or a two-year-old. Well, okay, another person. You know, so just because I think I'm communicating X, Y, and Z, does that mean the animal is understanding X, Y, and Z? And it may not be. And how can you tell by the way they're reacting and responding to your approach? I think a big part of it is being observant. And that is a big part of it. What was it, Albert? The definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result and you don't get it. You've got to be observant of the animal's reactions, but you also have to do your research on natural history. Prey animal, predator, omnivore, social, solitary, all of those things factor in how that animal is going to perceive what's going on around it. A prey animal, everything's a threat. Horses are a really good example. Everything's going to kill me, so every everything's a threat. Okay. Predators are very different. Not everything's a threat. So if I'm working with a horse and I move really fast and I'm really loud, that horse is going to perceive me as a threat mm-hmm. because everything's a threat. So if I don't want to come across as a threat, I need to slow down, calm down, move quietly, speak softly, until that animal learns, oh, you're not a threat. Individual animals may have baggage. They may have a history that you are unaware of. So if you can find out an an individual animal's history, have they been abused? Were they in a hoarding situation? Did that parrot live with one person for 65 years and that person died? Mm. Talk about trauma. These are all things that are going to influence that individual animals. And that's a really good question. Can you learn that? You have to observe the animal's reactions. Are you seeing fear? Are you seeing socialization? Are you seeing anxiety? Are you seeing acceptance? Are you seeing curiosity? What I'm hearing on the front end is you have to have patience. Mm -hmm. You have to slow down. Mm -hmm. 
and be on the same journey with yep. the animal. So it's very much about nonverbal communication, mm-hmm. although you can teach verbal commands Absolutely. to animals. Yes. But first, you have to build that trust with your companion animals. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about the patience thing, and my husband used to work in a humane society when we lived in Wisconsin. And that was one of the most amazing experiences for him and for me. Patience was a really key thing because people would adopt an animal, take it home, and expect it to be perfect Mm -hmm. overnight. And it's not going to be. You need to have a lot of patience when you adopt an animal, especially out of a shelter. Hopefully the shelter has been able to get their history and can communicate to you what has happened to this animal. And be ready to just say, you know what, kitty cat, go hide under the bed for two days. And when you're ready, I'll be out here to to greet you and feed you and, and be your friend. But you cannot force yourself on the animal. Mm-hmm. Let the animal make the choices. But you need to be observant enough to see what those choices are and change your behavior to help that animal be successful. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. yeah. So let's fast forward. Let's say that you've created the human-animal bond and mm-hmm. there's trust there and you want to actually shape some specific behaviors. Say you want to train your dog to heal and <laughs> play frisbee and or even do agility stuff. Ooh. Maybe you want to teach your guinea pig to do the same thing. Or maybe you want to suppress some behaviors mm-hmm. that are negative behaviors that might be destructive. You know, let's just say, for example, to your furniture. There's two different paths to adding behaviors or capturing the ones that you want Mm -hmm. and suppressing or extinguishing the ones that you don't. Let's do the good one first, the positive one. Let's lay the base work for animal training. This is going to take a little while. Everybody, I think, has an innate understanding of what reinforcement is. You you hear the word reinforcement and most people go, yeah, I kind of know what that is. Give me a cookie. Give me a cookie. And reinforcement in animal training is anything that will increase the likelihood of that behavior happening again. My cat comes when he's called from anywhere in the house. Wow. And a lot of people will say, you can't train a cat. Want to bet? And it's all because we understand reinforcement. He can be asleep, and you know cats sleep hard, asleep upstairs in a laundry basket, deep in a closet, (laughs) deep in a closet. I can call his name from downstairs twice. Elmer, Elmer. And he is out of the laundry basket. I can hear him. He jumps out of the laundry basket, trots across the floor, comes downstairs, comes to me. What? What? You called? What's going on? What do you want? And he gets a reward. Mm-hmm. He gets positive reinforcement. He can be outside. He can be two fences over. We'll stick our head out the back door. Elmer! Elmer! We can hear him coming through the yards, dropping over the, the, the fences. And he shows up. Because we have worked with this cat since the day we brought him home. That if we call his name, he comes over, he gets a reward. Mm-hmm. Every single time. And this is actually a really important behavior for an emergency. If I need him and I need him now, I want him to come a-running when I call his Mm. name. So that is the use of positive reinforcement. When we talk about positive reinforcement, a lot of times people think the word positive has the symbolic connotation of being a good thing. And that's not what it means in animal training. Mm -hmm. In animal training, 
Positive just means something is added to the animal's environment that increases the likelihood the behavior is going to happen again. Oh, Think of it as a plus a sign. A plus sign. Exactly. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a treat. What are some other things that animals like to get as rewards? Toys. A lot of dogs have a really high toy drive. When you look at a lot of working dogs, you know, uh, military working dogs, drug sniffing dogs, bomb sniffing dogs, they don't work for food. They work for toys. Mm -hmm. There's a favorite tennis ball toy. And when he alerts to the, the proper scent, he gets to play with his toy. Ah. So you have to find one, the right reinforcer. For my cat, thank heavens, it's his regular food. Oh, that's easy. It's totally easy. For dogs, it can be food. It can be toys. For some dogs, praise. For some animals, praise is very reinforcing. Cats, not so much. <laughs> yeah. When we trained big cats, sometimes we would use, this is a little gross, but we would pour the blood off of the meat mm. and we could dilute that with a little bit of water, put it in a squeeze bottle. And so that could be one of the reinforcements is a little blood juice. Okay. And what would you be training big cats to do? In something as, as important as put your claws up on the mesh, put your claws through the mesh and let me trim your toenails. Okay. For a big cat, if a claw is getting too overgrown, I don't want to completely anesthetize an animal just to trim one claw. I'm just imagining your mom trying to oh my pull God. that cat out from underneath Other, the bed. Yeah, don't do that with a lion. Come on. Again, cooperative husbandry behaviors. How can we teach you to participate in your own care so that we can better maintain your health? How do you teach your two-year-old to brush their teeth? Same thing, you know, but not through mesh. <laughs> Well, right, because <laughs> the two-year-old can't sure. kill you. The same kind of principles. We try to use positive reinforcement as much as possible. That positive reinforcement builds what we call that bank of trust mm. so that the animal associates the keeper with good things that they want. This was, wasn't on a big cat, but I know my, my keepers in Milwaukee trained a hyena for an ultrasound, and we trained a sloth bear in Idaho Falls for an ultrasound to, to confirm a pregnancy diagnosis. Oh, wow. That's awesome. It is so awesome. <laughs> so we, we could be prepared for an impending birth of a very important species in a managed population. We've trained a lot of animals, not just big cats, but primates who are incredibly intelligent to accept voluntary injections in the arm. What were they getting injections for? A tetanus shot. Okay. You know, a tetanus yeah. shot stings a little bit when it goes in. But I need to get a tetanus shot to keep me healthy. And some anesthetics or even antibiotics can sting a little bit when they go in. But we have such a good relationship with those animals that they will accept that. They sit there and I can see them wince a little bit, but they stay because they know I'm not going to deliberately hurt them. Mm -hmm. We have built that bank of trust. Okay. Now, you, to be clear, mm -hmm. these are all for healthcare yes. reasons, for animals in human care, yes. in regulated and accredited yes. settings, zoos and yeah. aquariums. Yep. So we're not talking about hurting the animals no. deliberately. No. This is to keep them healthy and happy yep. and well cared for. Have you worked with any animals that were getting injections for diabetes? Not me personally, mm -hmm. but I worked with a diabetic marmoset who I did have to train to pee in a cup. Hmm. <laughs> How on earth do you train a marmoset to pee in a cup? Pee in a cup. That's a behavior you can really only capture. 
Okay. And when I say capture, I mean you sit and you watch. And when they do it, you reward the behavior and you associate a word with it. With the marmoset, we wanted to check the glucose in her urine. And so I would go down in the mornings. And what do you have to do when you wake up in the morning? All right. See, it's all about timing. Timing is critical. I'd get down there early. They'd be waking up. And I'd just kind of be there and watching her. And I'm cleaning and watching And I could see her get ready and I had my little cup and I would put it up underneath her and as she would urinate, I'd say, pee, good girl, pee, good girl, and give her a little sweet gum that was okay for her diabetes Mm -hmm. that I could reward her with. So the goal was to have her... One, be comfortable with the cup underneath her, because that's a little freaky, right? Right. But she was comfortable enough with me in, in the area, and I'm giving her something she likes. And eventually, I got her to pee on command. Uh-huh. It was a matter of waiting to see it happen and to start assigning a word to that behavior. Very good. So, yes, so- I trained a marmoset to pee in a cup. <laughs> Not too many people can claim that. So you just said you saw a behavior that you wanted to reinforce, Mm -hmm. and when you captured that behavior, you rewarded it. Mm -hmm. What if I see a behavior that I don't want, Mm -hmm. for example, scratching on my furniture, just asking for a friend? And how do I extinguish that behavior? I'm borrowing your lingo. Yeah. Let's back up and talk about punishment for just a moment. Oh, yeah, of course, because I don't want to punish my animals. Most people would say, yell at the cat and tell him no and squirt him with the squirt bottle if they're scratching something you don't want. And that's not going to build a bank of trust. Mm -hmm. But most people use punishment inappropriately because punishment is all about timing. Mm -hmm. Punishment is all about decreasing the likelihood of a behavior happening again. So yes, how do we extinguish that behavior? One of the things you can do is give the cat another alternative. Mm. And when they use that alternative, reward the bejesus out Mm -hmm. of them. This is what I want you to scratch on. Scratching is a natural behavior. Mm -hmm. They need to scratch. You have to give them an opportunity to engage in that behavior in a way that you find acceptable. Is it a scratching post? Is it a piece of sacrificial furniture? Some people are like, you know what? I don't care about that chair. They can scratch that chair. We have expensive leather couches and not a scratch on them. Wow. Because we have a cat tree that Elmer knows he can scratch all he wants. Mm -hmm. But if he does go to scratch on the furniture and we see it, he gets told no. And in a very loud, stern, scary voice. But when he goes to scratch on the scratching post on the cat tree, Mm -hmm. he gets told he's a good boy. Mm -hmm. He gets rewarded and he gets to engage in a behavior he really likes. Mm -hmm. And the problem is a lot of people will try to correct the behavior after the fact. You know, the dog would poop in the house and they'd rub the dog's nose in the poop and, and yell at them and tell them they were a bad dog. And the logic was the dog will associate me yelling at them with their poop. It's too late. Once they pooped in the house. The timing is critical. If you could catch the dog pooping in the house, then tell them no, and then get them outside, that's a much better order of learning for the animal. Right. And you got to zoom that lens out of what are the circumstances Mm -hmm. that are activating the animal to do that behavior in that particular way. Did the dog poop in the house because it didn't get let out at its regular time? Is the cat scratching on the furniture because it doesn't have alternatives? Which brings us back around to enrichment. Enrichment. Lots Uh, of alternatives. So we were in at the Pretoria Zoo consulting 
with I was with Shape of Enrichment and we were looking at a an enclosure of lion-tailed macaques and they had a, a dominant male, a harem of females, some babies. Everybody looks healthy and the enclosure is good. There's lots of variety, but the male is skinny as a rail and just looks anxious and unhappy and nervous. And the keepers recognize this and the curators recognize this. So we're talking about him. What's going on with him? And we worked him up medically. He was fine. We talked about diet and nutrition. That was all good. We were looking at the enclosure. It was good. Lots of good monkey enrichment, good training opportunities. We literally put them in an enclosure and said, think about this from the animal's perspective. And we're like, wow, everything seems good in here. Let's take a step back, literally. So we walked like 20 feet back from the enclosure. And I said, let's look around the enclosure. What's going on around them? And right next door is a leopard. Oh, God. With no visual barrier. Oh. That male macaque could see the leopard all the time. And what is a male macaque's job? To protect his harem. From From the leopard. (laughs) So we're like, might want to try putting up some bamboo fencing. And they put it up. And then we went away for like two weeks to other zoos and came back. And he looked so much better, so much more relaxed. The leopard didn't care. He was a nice, fat, happy leopard. So like you said, step back and look at what's happening in the bigger picture of that animal's world and think about what's happening around my animal. That really validates the conclusion of when someone gets a pet and then basically their house goes from being the house for the people to (laughs) now it belongs to the pet. Talk about what it takes to be a good pet family. One of the most important things you can do if you're considering bringing a companion animal into your life is think about what can I do to improve life for that animal? Think about the the lifestyle you lead. If it's just you, is it you and a spouse? Is it you, a spouse, and two kids? What's the temperament of the children? Is it a busy household? I, I always like to go back to it's how do I make sure I'm giving them what they need mm-hmm. to, to have the best life they can. That's wonderful. What a wonderful way to invite the animal into your home. Mm-hmm. In order for animals to acquire the behaviors that we want, knowing the command to go outside and go potty, knowing heal and fetch and all of these things, is it better to have one person in the family Ooh. who's the primary trainer or does everybody need to be on board? That's to, a good know, question. Good parent, bad parent, yeah. or the kid that always lets the, the pet get away with you know, feeding at the table. And so how do you make sure that the animal understands what the family's expectations are? What are the rules? Those, yeah, what are the rules? That's a great way to yeah. figure out what are the what rules. Are the rules? Yeah. Consistency. And this goes for training an animal at a zoo, training an animal at home. If the expectation is it's dinner time for the family mm-hmm. and the dog has to sit during dinner time at the edge of the carpet, everybody needs to make sure that the dog sits at the edge of the carpet and he doesn't get fed table scraps. If one person lets the dog scooch closer to the table, Mm -hmm. but the next person says, nope, you got to get back there. Think about it from the dog's perspective. The dog is going to be confused. And the dog has found an ally. Oh, my house. (laughs) My cat, Elmer, totally knows the weak link and it ain't me. It's Matt. He's the one that at three o'clock in the morning when he gets up, he feeds the cat and the cat knows if I bug you at three in the morning, you're going to get up and feed. So yes, the, the, the animals learn, oh, I can get away with that with you. But if one person 
does it one way and another person does it another and another person does it another, mm. it can cause a lot of confusion and frustration. And ultimately what can happen is the behavior breaks down completely mm. and the animals just kind of kind of go, yeah, oh, forget you. Go on strike. Yeah, they do. It's called learned helplessness. I don't understand what your expectations are. I don't understand what you want me to do, so I'm not going to do anything. And I'll bet a lot of people will go, I've had bosses like that. Why don't you tell me about your favorite animal? Oh. What is your favorite animal oh. and why? That is such a tough question because I've worked with some really cool individual animals, but that species isn't necessarily my favorite. So can I pick like a bird, mammal, reptile, fish, and an invertebrate? <laughs> I love that you have the invertebrate in there too because, yes, we must have a favorite invertebrate. So let's start with that. Okay. Cuttlefish. Cuttlefish are just super cool. First of all, chromatophores. Like an octopus, they can change color and texture with their emotional state. And they have waves of color through their bodies. It's just the most amazing thing to watch. I remember consulting at an aquarium and I was I was standing in front of a bank of cuttlefish off exhibit. The aquarist was standing in front of me with their back to the cuttlefish. And she's holding in her hand a feeder puzzle for the cuttlefish. Oh, you're kidding. No. And she's talking. And and she would talk and her hands would go out to the side and the cuttlefish could see the device in her hand. And they would all swim to the front of the tank and get real excited and flash color. And you could tell they recognized what this thing was. And there's color undulating through their bodies. And then she would kind of bring it back in front of her and talk and they can't see it. And they'd all just kind of chill out and they'd stop flashing color. And then she'd get all animated again and the toy would go out to the side and they'd see it and they'd get all excited again. And I just start busting up. (laughs) And she's like, what's so funny? I'm like, turn around. It was the funniest thing. So they're not even a fish. No, they're called cuttlefish, but they're related to, they're a mollusk. Uh, closely related to squid and octopi and nautilus Got it. and octopus are a close second mm-hmm. but because of this experience with cuttlefish i was just totally enthralled and i've seen a couple of them in the wild and they're just super cool and, and beautiful fish uh, south american cichlids we had a pet cichlid whose name was the rock and he was very aware just like those cuttlefish were very aware okay. he would chase the cat back and forth I think he was a little confused. He has it backwards. Yeah, and he he would eat out of our hand, and he was a very cool, aware fish. Right on. Reptiles, I think my favorite reptile is a ball python. They're beautiful. They're big enough to be impressive, mm-hmm. but they're not so big as they can kill you. But one of the things I really like being able to do is have a snake in my hands and talk to somebody mm-hmm. who's a little on the fence about snakes. Mm-hmm. And after we're done talking and after they've had a chance to touch the snake, yes. they're like, all right, snakes are okay. And there's something just really wonderful about feeling yeah. like coiled around your yeah. arm and they're smooth. Or the, and, yeah. the, the tail through your belt loop. Oh yeah, I used to get the tail through the belt loop all the time. <laughs> that's fun. Or in your keys. Bird, if I had to pick one, it would be African penguins. Okay. Having worked with them and seen them in the wild, they are just captivating and they're so social and so backstabby (laughs) (laughs) and there is our obligatory cat moment in the podcast (laughs) the cat wants the attention don't talk about penguins talk about me when i worked with a colony in idaho falls i called it penguin 90210 the drama in the penguin colony was just fascinating 
because it was like junior high all over again. And he has a crush on her, but she doesn't like him. And she likes him over here. But she's not going to nest with him. She's going to nest with him. Oh, my God. But what was one of the really cool things about it all was you could make it relatable to people. And then you could tie in... You know, just like us, they have preferences, and then you could slip in conservation. Their numbers have plummeted, and don't you want to help us by supporting penguin conservation and pass the hat? And yeah, we did a really cool penguin interaction program. You could, as a member of the public, come into a special seating area, and we had a bunch of hand-raised birds, because that's what the the species survival plan wanted you to do. And an opportunity yeah. for the community yeah. to see animals that they might not otherwise be able to see, because not everybody can go on safari yes. or take a trip to Antarctica. Yeah. So that is a role that zoos mm-hmm. play in our lives. Mm-hmm. I know there are people who would rather see all of the animals just out in the wild, and no animals in human care. And that would be really, really amazing. Amazing if we could protect the wild spaces and if we could protect the yeah. wild animals in wild spaces from poachers mm-hmm. and human encroachment and human animal conflict, and we could successfully co- have humans and animals coexist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And thinking about, okay, having all of the animals in the wild, having some animals in human care, I'm hoping that we can bring people around to yeah. thinking that it's not all bad and not all good. Yeah. That these things occur on a spectrum. Yeah, exactly. A lot of times we look at our, we think of our animals in zoos as the ambassadors for their wild cousins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nicely put. You've talked about Elmer, the <laughs> famous cat. Yes, I love Elmer. <laughs> Tell me about your other pets. Oh, and you mentioned Mr. Spock. Oh, yes, the lizard. So, and then there's an old crotchety cranky cockatiel named Bonnie. She's probably 18-ish, maybe. Wow. Cockatiels can live to be 20, 25. She finally decided after 13 years that I was okay. And I have had a horse as well. So I've had quite the menagerie of my own. And the, the bearded dragon's one of my favorite acquisitions. When we lived in Wisconsin at Milwaukee County Zoo, we had a relationship with the veterinary school out in Madison. We were part of a residency program. But one of the things that they were studying was the subcutaneous fluid rate absorption in lizards. Okay. So there's so little data on how to treat reptiles, that the more information we can have, the better we'll be able to take care of our reptiles. They had 12 bearded dragons Mm -hmm. at the vet school. They finished the study, and they needed to find homes for these bearded dragons. And so they called us up and said, hey, we've got three left. And I called my husband, and I said, honey, I am bringing home a bearded dragon. It took a while to name him. We were sitting around one evening and somehow we came around to one of our favorite shows, The Big Bang Theory. Okay. And we got onto that episode where they do rock, paper, scissors, lizard, Spock. Mm -hmm. And that's how we got his name, Spock. So yeah, we have quite the little menagerie. Love it. What are some resources that you recommend for people who might want to be better animal trainers for their own pets to work with horses or to perhaps work with large exotic animals like you've had the opportunity to? Karen Pryor's Don't Shoot the Dog. Everybody should read that. And not just because it's good for having a dog, but it's good to understand how things learn. Not just animals, Mm -hmm. how people learn too. It's a really, really good book on how animals learn and how we can better facilitate our relationship through understanding how animals learn. The Ken Ramirez book, it's a really big book. It's the big orange Ken Ramirez book on animal training, and it's a textbook. 
the advanced level. Yeah. And then finally, what about this website, The Shape of Enrichment? Mm. Shape of Enrichment, really great organization. They travel all around the world to do enrichment and training workshops for zookeepers. And what do they do? What does it mean to teach training and enrichment to people who keep animals and human care? A lot of the things that we've talked about, it's it's more about a partnership, Mm -hmm. about building trust, about cooperation. And in some parts of the world, that is not the case. So that being said, there are different belief systems, different ways of looking at and caring Mm -hmm. for animals in different parts of the world. What is our ethical responsibility when it comes to having animals under human care? And different cultures have very different beliefs. Mm -hmm. Matt had dug out an old San Diego Zoo guidebook Mm -hmm. from like the 50s, because he collects old zoo paraphernalia. And the first line in the San Diego Zoo guidebook from the 50s was, these animals are here for your entertainment. Wow. A lot has changed. Yes. And accredited zoos have worked really hard to move away from these animals are here for your entertainment to these animals are here for conservation, to be that ambassador for their wild counterpart, and your visit here today helps save animals and habitat in the wild. And inspires you to care about... To take action Mm -hmm. and have empathy for other species Mm -hmm. and other humans. Yeah, empathy's a big one. Beth, what is your wish for the Earth? (laughs) (laughs) For for podcast listeners, we just want to let you know that a cat has literally jumped up on the table in between us. Hi. And she has inserted herself into the conversation, which is not only expected, but encouraged. Encouraged, yes. So, okay. My wish for the earth is that we can generate more empathy for wildlife and wild spaces. And this is tough because humans, like I said, are really good at thinking about themselves and thinking about how can I get ahead? But that doesn't necessarily further a more harmonious existence with ourselves and with nature. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat is coming from the earth. We've abused the planet pretty heavily and working with animals is just one facet of conservation. And empathy, I think, is really going to be what hopefully brings us around to saying, you know what? I don't need to make a million dollars. I I can be very happy living simply. And I think living simply is going to be what saves the earth. Thank you. Thank you, Silver, for joining us. Hi, Silver. Silver the cat. You're welcome. You. I'm sorry, cat. I needed yes. to say you're welcome, but I got oh, distracted okay. by Silver. Yeah, no, So yes, okay. you're very yes. welcome, Kathy. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. This fabulous theme song called The Dash was written and performed by my brother, John B. Nicholas, 
also known as John B. Free. 